Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Nicholas Seabrook, a professor of political science at the University of North Florida and author of the fascinating new book, One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. Nicholas, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Hey, Sean, thanks, and it's great to be here. It'd be great if we could start with a scene-setting question. What is meant by the idea of gerrymandering? And how does it manifest itself in U.S. politics? Is there a lot of variation across states in terms of how electoral boundaries are set? So one of the things that I focus on in the book is the fact that gerrymandering, as we understand it today, is pretty much a uniquely American phenomenon. Your listeners may be familiar with how the redistricting or redistribution, as you call it, in Canada works in most other nations. And a lot of them follow uh, a model that's similar to what happens throughout the British Commonwealth, where you have some kind of independent entity, the boundary commissions in Canada, uh, similar things in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, where The drawing of the districts that candidates will run in that will elect members of the House of Commons or whatever the legislative chamber is uh, are done independently. And the idea is that when you have politicians themselves directly involved in the redistricting process, it creates some really bad incentives. Those politicians want their side to win elections. They want to keep their own seats in government. And not infrequently, they will use the redistricting process to ensure that those things occur. And that's basically what we mean by gerrymandering. It's the drawing of the districts in such a way as to make more likely a certain political outcome, whether it's one side keeping control, politicians retaining their seats. And the U.S., unlike most other advanced democracies, maintains this system where the political branches of government in the majority of states still have control over the redrawing of districts. And so what I do in the book is really look at how this has manifested itself going all the way back in U.S. history, because it turns out that gerrymandering in America is older than the United States itself. I found examples from the colonial era. Um, I found that the framers of the U.S. Constitution themselves were uh, were not averse to a little gerrymandering, and that has really continued up until the present day as 
all of these other countries have figured out that leaving politicians in control of this process is a bad idea. The U.S. has kind of been stubbornly immune to redistricting reform. There has been some progress. Some states have taken steps to remove this process from politics, but far too many have not. And we're seeing that play out in the U.S. right now. Every 10 years, we get another round of gerrymandering, another round of hand-wringing about how bad it is, and not a whole lot happens. And I wrote the book to, to try and inspire people to, to actually fix this moving forward. We'll come to your latest book, um, including its historical analysis and then its forward-looking recommendations in a minute. But if we can talk for a second about your previous book, your 2017 book, Drawing the Lines, it generated considerable attention because while you called gerrymandering undemocratic, you also challenged the conventional wisdom that it's had significant effects on political competition and in turn represents something of a threat to U.S. democracy. Can you please unpack what you concluded and how it was received? So I think there's always been a little bit of a disconnect between how redistricting and gerrymandering are viewed both by politicians and the public, and the way that they're viewed by political scientists. And I think political science has always emphasized somewhat more that there's, there's more to this story and that there are trade-offs involved however you choose to approach redistricting. And so what I examined in that book was the implications of political control of redistricting, not only for bias, whether it's bias towards one political party or towards incumbents, but also towards electoral competitiveness as well. And I kind of found that one of the interesting side effects of gerrymandering, at least uh, as it occurred in the time period that I studied, which was the 1990s and the 2000s, one side effect was that gerrymandering did tend, on average, to produce more competitive districts when it was partisan than when you just saw the politicians compromising and protecting all of the incumbents. So a lot of that was, was kind of comparing different types, different flavors of American gerrymandering, the constraints that were involved in them, and the outcomes that they produced. While I do stand by the book, I also think that in the last couple of decades, there has been a shift in the way that a lot of the people involved in gerrymandering have tended to approach it. And a recognition that with the technology that we have today, with the, the data that we have today, you can produce that bias in the system without necessarily having to increase competition at the same time. And I think that's been the big downside. It began with the Republican Party's Red Map project after the, the 2010 census. I think the level of sophistication uh, in gerrymandering over the last couple of decades has kind of represented a new evolution of the phenomenon. And so that's kind of been my approach in, uh, in this follow-up book is to, to kind of trace that, that development over time. You can go back and look at gerrymandering from prior eras, and a lot of times it wasn't all that successful, kind of consistent with, with the story from my first book. But I think that really has changed in the last couple of decades, and that's why I see it as a much bigger threat today than it may have been even 10, 15 years ago. One more 
big picture question for listeners, Nicholas, before we shift to the key insights and findings of the most recent book. You talked about the potential impact on political competition. Let me just ask you, are there any secondary effects to gerrymandered districts? Is there any evidence, for instance, that it may have indirect effects on congressional voting patterns or the typical longevity of political careers or something else that may not be reflected merely in assessing the impact on electoral competition? I think the research in political science has been pretty consistent in uncovering that that gerrymandering is a symptom of the kind of broader democratic malaise that we're seeing in the United States rather than a driving force behind some of these things. So there's been uh, there's been um, studies that have looked at whether redistricting has or, or gerrymandering has contributed to the high degree of political polarization that we see in the United States. And I think the findings from that have fairly consistently shown that while gerrymandering is not a contributor towards polarization, um, the fact that you have all of that polarization means that we get gerrymandering more often and uh, it can be easier to to achieve when people are so are so divided. Um, similarly, we've had a uh, a, a long trend in U.S. elections towards districts being less competitive. Um, and part of the downside of that is that elections are increasingly decided in the primary rather than in the general election. And again, while gerrymandering has not been driving that change, the fact that districts are less and less competitive makes the effects of gerrymandering more significant. And so I think it's more that the, the changes in gerrymandering have been moving in parallel with other negative developments. And when you add all of those things together, it is really, really bad for the health of democracy. I also think that gerrymandering is probably the easiest of those things to fix. It's very hard to change people's worldviews, belief systems, partisanship. It's much easier to just make a simple change of, okay, we're no longer going to allow politicians to be involved in this process. That's not going to be a panacea, but it's something that you can fix and maybe at the margins can help with some of these other problems that we're experiencing. Okay, that's great kind of context to permit us now to delve into your latest book, One Person, One Vote. Um as you mentioned earlier, Nicholas, you've come back to the issue in this latest book, which, amongst other things, aims to discern the origins of gerrymandering and how it's evolved over U.S. history. What were you hoping to find and what would you say is the big takeaway? What was surprising, as the book's title suggests? I would say probably the most surprising thing is that what I at least had always assumed was the kind of origin story of gerrymandering. The quote-unquote first gerrymander not only was not the first gerrymander, there were numerous examples of it occurring in the United States prior to the infamous salamander district that was drawn in Massachusetts back in, back in 1812, which became associated with the governor of the state at the time, uh, a guy by the name of Elbridge Gary. Perhaps the most surprising thing was that I learned that uh, it was originally called gerrymandering, 
And it was only over time that the kind of more natural pronunciation of it as gerrymandering kind of caught on and eventually entirely replaced the original way that the the word had been had been pronounced but i think one of the things that the book does is to some extent vindicate elbridge gerry hopefully in the court of history for the fact that he is considered to be responsible for for this practice because not only did it predate uh, his association with it, even though it was eventually named after him. But he was really not all that involved in the quote-unquote original gerrymander or gerrymander. It was very much his political associates in the Massachusetts legislature at the time who had been really pushing to redraw the districts to try and give them an edge over their federalist opponents. And Gary, if you believe some of the stuff that was written at the time, and I think I do, was just kind of along for the ride. He wasn't driving the car. He signed the redistricting plan into law. It came to be associated with him, but it really wasn't his brainchild. And it wasn't something that he put front and center in his, his agenda. So hopefully his descendants will be happy with the fact that this kind of clears his name in the, uh, in the court of history as being the one who we have to blame for everything that's happening today. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You took up this point a bit earlier, but I'll ask you to elaborate. Based on your historical analysis, is gerrymandering in America getting better or worse? And either way, what do you attribute the, the trend to? I would say that it is getting worse, largely because of the technology that is now available for the people who are doing it. One of the historical gerrymanders that I talk about in the book happened in 1788 in Virginia. And there it was Patrick Henry going up against James Madison and attempting to draw a district that would prevent him from getting elected to the first Congress, the legislative body that gave us the Bill of Rights. And, and Madison obviously was, uh, was central to that process. He was the author of, of those amendments. But Patrick Henry's effort to gerrymander Madison out of the first Congress was fairly unsophisticated. He really didn't know what the voting populations in the state looked like. So he kind of gave it his best effort. He uh, looked at how different places voted when it came to sending delegates to the Constitutional Convention, kind of figured that that would be a, a rough proxy for how they felt about Madison, he recruited uh, uh, the biggest heavyweight that he could find to run against Madison in the form of James Monroe. This remains the only time in U.S. history that two future presidents have faced off against one another for a single seat in Congress. And even with all that, Madison went on to win the election in a near landslide. So 
there was certainly not a lack of will when it came to these early gerrymanders, but there was very much a lack of the tools to be able to to follow through. Uh, and it really wasn't until the 1980s when we saw the first rudimentary computer software that was used for drawing districts that things started to to become more sophisticated. And it really wasn't until the last two decades, really the last 12 years, the last two redistricting cycles, where it's not just having data available that's going to tell you, okay, here's where the Democrats are, here's where the Republicans are. It's also having the models to be able to simulate what will happen once those districts are drawn. So, you don't have to say, well, okay, if we put 55% Republicans in this district, is that likely to be enough? Maybe we should put 60. Maybe we should put 65. Now what they can do is say, well, okay, we've drawn this district. Let's simulate a decade's worth of elections and see, well, well what happens if we start to see a shift in one direction or the or the other. What happens if there's a Republican wave in one year and their presidential candidate does really well? And then they can use that information to kind of fine tune the gerrymander to remain robust across a whole range of hypothetical future developments. And that's what I think is really new today that hasn't been the case previously. That's also why I think They've realized that they don't have to draw a whole lot of competitive districts to make a gerrymander work, that they can create a lot of safe seats. And that gives them that added layer of security, of, cer of certainty that it's going to be robust across an entire decade. And so we have U.S. states where the Republicans controlled redistricting after 2010, and they have never lost their majority since then. Places like Wisconsin, for instance, where the GOP has controlled close to two-thirds of the seats in their legislature, even in elections since then when they've lost the popular vote overall. And that's what I, what I see as being really the new development when it comes to gerrymandering. Are Republicans or Democrats more guilty of exploiting gerrymandering or, or do they use it in broadly similar ways? I think they're both as guilty. The Republicans have been more successful, at least in the last couple of cycles. But that has been more an accident of the fact that the Republicans had a really, really good year in 2010. And that was Obama was not especially popular at the time. The Republicans swept into control in state legislatures in a lot of states that were not deep red states, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, here in Florida as well. Uh, and so you kind of had this confluence of events where the technology is now there to create gerrymanders that are really, really effective. And it just happens that the Republicans are now in control in many, many more states than Democrats are. Uh, and I think Democrats were caught a little bit flat-footed by that. This most recent decade, they've been fighting back. We've seen in places like New York, in places like Illinois, in New Jersey, in Maryland, that the Democrats are, are, have come equipped with the same set of tools 
they have suffered from the fact that the judiciary has in the states where Democrats are in control, pushed back a little bit more against some of their gerrymanders. But I think both historically and contemporaneously, this is something that every political party has been guilty of. Democrats, Republicans, I talk about gerrymanders by the Whigs back in the 1840s in the book. You can go back even further, Democratic, Republicans, and Federalists. This is something that no political party seems to be able to resist. When when those districts are on the table and they have an opportunity to use it to gain an edge over their opponents, it's very, very rare that that a political party doesn't push that advantage. As an aside, Nicholas, I'm speaking to you from the Upper West Side in, in New York City, which was subject to gerrymandering in the, in the last round. And it's uh, now a perfectly calibrated district, which uh, involves part of Manhattan through Park Slope and, and Brooklyn. It really is, uh, the result is a kind of perfectly calibrated Democratic district in part of the city that at different times has been more competitive. So as you say, um, increasingly in the states in which the different parties have a, a foothold, they're kind of entrenching or codifying that foothold through some of these processes. Let me step back for a second and ask you a big picture question that I, I, I was thinking about as I prepared for today's conversation. Notwithstanding the impact that gerrymandering has, is having or, or is reflective of at the local level, one of the extraordinary things about the state of U.S. politics is just how competitive it's been in the aggregate over the past couple of decades. What do you attribute that to? How has America become, in effect, a, a kind of 50-50 country of some sort? I think that's more of a general tendency in a two-party system at the kind of the, the highest level of aggregation when it comes to running for national offices. Uh, and I think this has also been true, not necessarily for all of U.S. history, but you go back to a lot of the elections in the late 19th century, for instance, that the issues were entirely different. A lot of it was about tariffs, whether Republicans or Democrats were for or against particular tariffs. But a lot of those elections were really competitive as well. I think kind of the period from the New Deal through the civil rights movement, when Democrats really dominated at the presidential level, but even more so in Congress, was something of, a, of an artificial period in that you had the New Deal coalition that, that FDR was able to assemble that was very much cross-ideological, where you had a lot of Southern Democrats who were very conservative, and then you had the party's base outside of the South, which was very much kind of working class liberals, very much union based, that coalition really started to crumble in the aftermath of the civil rights movement when gradually, and this process took several decades to fully manifest, but conservative white Southerners abandoned the Democratic Party and, and embraced the GOP. And so I think that's why that period of time disappeared and why at the national level things uh, are so much more competitive now because the parties are, are more aligned ideologically. You have the left pretty much voting for Democrats, the right pretty much voting for Republicans. And in the two-party system, 
the political parties kind of naturally orient themselves to, towards that, that coalition. And as the middle disappears, you increasingly just have these two camps screaming at each other across the divide. And that's, that's the, the situation we find ourselves in now. I think there's a natural tendency in uh, a system where it's so dominated by, by two parties that they orient their policies towards uh -huh, putting together a coalition that's going to allow them to compete at the at the national level. I suspect that listeners have been persuaded by your case that the process of gerrymandering uh, ought to be subject to reform. The, the natural question is, how do you build political support for reform agenda? Are there models in some of the U.S. states that have moved in a, a more independent direction that look the most promising as a kind of catalyst or, or a basis for reform. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So what we've seen over the last 10 years in particular has been a proliferation of a kind of patchwork of redistricting reform, and it's taken various different forms. I think what is clear is that the most effective way to address this is the way that other nations have done so, which is to simply remove the power for drawing districts from, from politicians. And that gets you most of the way towards fixing the problem. Some of the reforms that have been less successful have been ones that have attempted to place constraints on politicians. This is what we've tried here in Florida. Uh, so back in 2010, the voters of Florida approved two new amendments to the Constitution, which basically said that, okay, we're going to leave the state legislature in control, but they're not allowed to gerrymander. And then what immediately happened was that they went ahead and gerrymandered anyway. And eventually, it took four or five years, the state Supreme Court did eventually strike down both the congressional map and the state Senate map that were in place in Florida last decade. We did get fair districts, but lawsuits are a time-consuming and costly and not guaranteed for success way of combating gerrymandering, which is why in the book, I really advocate for a different model, which is the Citizens Redistricting Commission. This is something that's been tried in three different states uh, at this point. California put their Citizens Redistricting Commission in place a decade ago. This time around, both Colorado and Michigan have adopted similar reforms. And Independent commissions are not always going to give you 100% fair, fair districts. We see this elsewhere as well in other countries that have a boundary commission or something similar. But at the very least, it's going to give you a fair process and one where kind of every, every trade-off isn't being pushed in the direction of how does this benefit me or my political party. You have regular people who are uh, selected generally at random, who have to apply, and who kind of go into this without all of that political baggage that tends to attach itself when it's politicians who are, who are doing it. So if I had to make a recommendation, that would be the recommendation that, that I would make because we have it. It's in various states. It seems to be working reasonably well. And 
every time Americans are given the opportunity to actually vote on this, gerrymandering reform tends to do really well. We saw that with the initiatives here in Florida. We saw that with various ballot initiatives in a whole host of other states. The problem is that you don't have that option available everywhere. And so if you're in a state that doesn't have some kind of direct democracy, you're left trying to convince the politicians in your state legislature to voluntarily give up this power, which is much more of an uphill battle. I think there's also a lot of room for Congress to address this problem as well when it comes to federal elections. And we've seen bills proposed. The problem is that they have gone nowhere in in the Senate. They've been attached to these kind of omnibus voting rights bills where there are things in there that are that are controversial. So even though I think a lot of Republicans dislike gerrymandering as much as Democrats do, the problem in the Senate has been the gerrymandering reform is attached to all of these other things. And there's plenty of reasons that Republicans have to pose those uh, those omnibus bills overall. So I would like to see Congress introduce gerrymandering reform as a standalone bill, kind of find out where people stand on it, because polling and indeed voting suggests that Americans are overwhelmingly in favor of fixing gerrymandering. It's just a case of giving them the opportunity to, to actually do so. Let me ask a final question. You said earlier, Nicholas, that while you are a major proponent of redistricting reform, you recognize that it's not a a panacea for some of the the deeper issues in American politics. May I just ask if you have any other thoughts um, to um, improve or mitigate the trend towards polarization and political dysfunction in the United States? I think that's considerably more challenging, and in particular because a lot of it is kind of cultural at this point, that being a Democrat, being a Republican has become kind of part of your cultural identity, and there's just no common ground there on a lot of the issues that we're we're facing. I think one thing that might be a profitable avenue to explore is even more broadly than just the gerrymandering issue, the problem of our districts becoming so uncompetitive, the decline of competitive seats in Congress and in state legislatures, because that I think magnifies the problem considerably when you have the primary electorate basically picking the candidates and Primary voters tend to be more ideologically extreme. And so that's why we're seeing people getting elected to not just state legislatures, but people getting elected to Congress who have some really way out there beliefs. And when you look at the district they're running in, it's like a Republican plus 50 district or something like that, where there's no meaningful opportunity for the other side to compete and to contest. So in terms of political solutions, I think there are broader cultural and societal issues that I'm not qualified to address or to to suggest how we might go about fixing them. But politically, I just think, and, and this was my big recommendation from my first book, which uh, was that we need to have more competitive districts. We need to have more seats in which the outcome is in doubt. 
And that's how you get an electoral system that's more responsive to the people. And if politicians know that they're going to lose if they do things that are unpopular, I think that starts to build that responsiveness and to build some of that trust back into the system. And perhaps over time, that starts to, to, to fix some of the other problems as well. Well, a, a big part of that process should start by reading Nicholas Seabrook's new book, One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>